We'd go down through town real slow, you know, just putt, 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 looking for the police. And then when we find him, we go down a couple blocks and turn around and come back and just fly by just as hard as we'd go, <laughs> trying to get him to chase us. And they did for a long time. Uh, but And we always got away. We never got caught. <laughs> and that was a different day, you know. Mm-hmm. If you got away, you got away. It wouldn't happen like that now. <laughs> They'd just send somebody out tomorrow or tonight and haul you off. But, <laughs> but it used to be if you could outrun them, you did. And you were home free, and we did it all the time, <laughs> night after night after night, until 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 they came over to the job one summer day when my brother and I were working for my dad. We were in the, we were in the back of the house painting, and my dad came around and said, "I don't know what's going on, but the cops are out front, and they want it. They want you two out there." <laughs> like, oh, okay. So we went around there, and they said, "We just came by to tell you, with your dad present, we are done chasing you." <laughs> When you get killed, we won't be there to help you. You'll just lay in a ditch and die because we are done chasing you. We don't get paid that good. And we're like, oh, rats, now what do we do for fun? <laughs> so what we decided to do is start looking for the highway patrol. <laughs> Welcome to Restoration Basics. This is the Preparatory Podcast. My name is Samuel Jordison, and I'm joined with uh, by my friends, the two regulars, Andrew Smith, Jason Kane, and uh, tonight we also have two special guests. If you guys want to introduce yourselves, I'm Cheryl Phipps, and I'm Sherman Phipps. <laughs> and uh, Cheryl and Sherman have been giants in the uh, branch I grew up in. Cheryl raised her eyes when I said that. <laughs> Uh, They're not that tall. <laughs> spiritual, uh, I'll say stalwarts that that were um, very important to my growing up, and I know the branch of Mount Air still today, but I consider it a very special treat to get to uh, talk with them tonight, and we'll be hearing a little bit of their, well, hopefully a lot of their testimonies and experiences. And just to kick it off, I guess I'll ask you both, who are Sherman and Cheryl Phipps for just the a little about me that you might put at a bottom of the page. Well, I don't know what exactly you want to know, but we've been married 57 years. We have four daughters, 12 living grandchildren, and 14, I think, great-grandchildren with two more great-grandchildren on the way. We've lived here in Lamoni since 1975, and I don't know what else you want to know about us. <laughs> There's not much to know, really. <laughs> Did you guys um, just? Did you guys grow up in the church? Do you, what's what's been the the? And this is, I so I know some of the experiences. So this is foreshadowing. But I guess asking you both, did what was your experience spiritually? I guess growing up and and that journey. I did grow up in the church, and uh, I always think of Nephi's words when he said, "Having been born of goodly parents, because I had great parents," and uh, I won't get into the experience other than to say that my dad grew up in the church, but it was in a home where the church was not something, an active part of their lives. But uh, when he was in the service in World War II, he had a lot of concerns, and I won't get into that either, but he prayed about it a lot. And my, by then he was married, and my mom prayed with him a lot. And uh, the bottom line is he was visited by an angel who assured him that he would return from overseas, um, assured him that 
there was a God who heard his prayers, that um, the restoration movement was God's work, that Joseph Smith was a prophet, and then showed him a whole number of things that would happen to him during his lifetime so that it was kind of a living testimony. It went on until the day he died. Um, and about a week before he died, he told me, he said, everything the angel showed me except one thing has happened. So he, he knew, I mean, it was an ongoing thing. He knew that that experience was real, and I always knew it too. So mm -hmm. anyhow, so I did grow up in the church. Cheryl? <laughs> um, I grew up in a home. I have a, only have a twin sister, and uh, my folks smoked and drank. They had good morals, but I wouldn't say they were religious at all. So when I found the gospel at age 16, it literally changed my life. And did you guys, you guys met at a church event? Is it correct you met at church? Yes, he, he was in Grace, at Graceland his freshman year, and he came home for Christmas break. And we were at a Zions League activity, and he had kind of had a bad experience with girls, and so he didn't... <laughs> He didn't want anything to do with a girl, but his brother set him up with me. And we had a Yuletide retreat we went to, and then he went back to Graceland. And I started, we started writing each other, and a year and a half later, we got married. And I guess I'll just kick this right off into the deep as far as I can go. But there was a, uh, an experience that we referred to as the Crescent Experience that happened in the church while you guys were attending. That's where you were attending, right? Um, and as Sherman, were you part of the priesthood? Because you're a high priest today. When were you, what was your uh, dates of ordination, roughly, I guess? Well, I think originally I was ordained when I was 14 to the office of deacon. And then when I was 15 or 16, probably 16, I was ordained to the office of teacher. Uh, and that's what I was when I was at Graceland, and then when I was... The summer that we got married, you were in 60, called to be an in elder. In 63, I was called to be an elder, and I think I was 19 or 20 then, because um, we got married when I was 19, she was 18. <laughs> um, and then when I was 30, I was called to be a high priest. So the you were um, you're a teacher during the Crescent experience then right okay right so I guess I'll ask you both what what was the Crescent experience for our listeners who have no idea what it was and even those who do can you give us some of the experiences and just start to finish I guess I'll share my part of the Crescent experience because I'm familiar with that my sister and I were non-members of course and she started dating a Latter Day Saint boy. And she started going to Zion's League with him, and she fell in love with the church and the church people. And she wanted to join the church, but I convinced Mom and Dad to tell her no. And she started asking me to go to Zion's League with her on Sunday nights. And for several months, I said no. But then that left me home alone with Mom and Dad. Not that that was a bad thing, but Sharon and I were close. And so finally, I think the Lord put it in my head, well, why don't you go if you don't like it? You don't have to go back. 
So I went, and I was drawn to the church and to the church people. I was a teenager. I was 16. I didn't think anyone liked me. And so to be in a congregation where I received the love I received was was fantastic. And that year that, or the next year that I started going to, to church when I could, prayer service fell on July 4th. And the pastor, Paul Winans, decided that we would have church. And his wife and his counselor were against it. Creston had a big 4th of July celebration. They said no one will come. But Paul felt like the Lord was telling him to do it. So he had it, and there were a lot of people there. I remember exactly where I was sitting that night, and the congregation was spoken to and told some things that were going to happen. Sharon and I were spoken to. And Paul later said that as he spoke to the congregation, he saw two identical-looking men walk through the back what would you call it, the doors into the Mm -hmm. sanctuary. And one of them touched the shoulder of a man that Paul had been thinking that he needed to use, and one touched a young man that Paul felt was telling him that this guy, this kid, had something special that was going to happen. And so then... I don't think any of us went to the 4th of July celebration. The young people went to a home, and we had a prayer service. And from that night on, on Wednesday nights, we started having fantastic experiences. At the end of August that year, Sharon and I were spoken to in an ancient Lamanite tongue, and we were told that the Lord loved us. And even though many times we wished to be baptized and mom and dad wouldn't let us, that the Holy Spirit had baptized us. Just like in Third Nephi where it says, And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. And we, there were a lot of people that came. I can remember the youth would come early, and we would sit in the front of the church to make preparation. A lot of times we'd sing campfire songs. And the priesthood that were part of the service always came early to prepare for whatever was going to happen. Uh, Sherman's brother David spoke under the influence of the Spirit in tongues to one night. We had people that were healed. You didn't have to worry about people standing up to pray and testify because there was always someone on their feet. The services, of course, lasted more than an hour. And as time went on and word spread that things were happening in Creston, we started getting a lot of people coming on Wednesday nights, and sometimes it'd be standing room only. How big was the branch at, at before the or at the start of the experience? I'd say normal attendance on a Sunday morning was probably maybe fifty some people. I don't really remember for mm-hmm. sure. But. 
But I forgot to say that one of the main reasons that this experience took place was because the people dedicated themselves to praying and fasting, to doing their accounting, paying their tithing, and following the word of wisdom. And so that's what started this. And no, silly me, I was a teenager, and I thought it started with the people that were coming back then. And I found out later, no, it started back in 1955 when Paul was told that if the Lord, that if the people would pray, that this could happen. And then Delbert Smith became um, 70 to the stake, and he was very active in the congregation. He did cottage meetings. But when I was a senior in high school, our history teacher was a church member. He was an elder in the church, and he just happened to live across the street from the high school. And so we decided that we would fast our lunch every noon, and we would go over to his house. We invited our non-member friends, and a lot of them went. I can remember standing in a circle and praying for the five girls that wanted to be baptized and for the non-member husbands that were, some of them had been baptized by then, but there were a few others that were kind of coming around. And we did that the whole school year. And it was a, a fantastic experience. But my folks were very much against the church. And they were against Sherman. And I don't, should I go into my other experiences? Yeah, you can you go into it wherever you want. Yeah. Well, the December that I turned 18, my birthday's on Christmas Eve, we decided that we wanted to get married. And Sherman bought me a ring, and we prayed about it, and the congregation prayed about it, and we picked December 30th to go and talk to Mom and Dad. And when she says her parents were against me, they really didn't like me. <laughs> and so we, we went over to my house, and we went in, and Mom was the only one at home. And she said that Dad was visiting his mom. And so finally, Sherman worked up the courage to show her the ring and tell her why we were there. And she became very hostile and said, well, we could wait if we wanted to, but she knew what Dad's response was going to be. We prayed and fasted. The congregation was praying for us. So for an hour and a half, we sat there. She was on one side of the living room. We were on the other. And finally, Dad drove into the carport that was... There attached to the basement. During that hour and a half, there wasn't any conversation either. She just sat and glared at us. <laughs> and I thought about leaving, but I thought, you know, we've, we've done all this praying and fasting, and not just us, but the whole congregation, so I'm just going to stay and see what happens. So Dad came home, and he walked up the basement stairs, and she ran right out there, and you could hear him, pss, 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 pss. and he came in with a big smile on his face. And he said, well, does the ring fit me? And Mom was flabbergasted. <laughs> and he sat down and counseled us. At that time, I was going to nurses' training school after I graduated, and Sherman was going to law school. And so then we went back to the church, and we became engaged. I think only once in the year and a half that we dated did we actually have a date most of the time, we were involved with church activities, and 
I was fine with that. I didn't think anything about it. So then that next Wednesday night was when John the Beloved, we found out he had been there for six months. And he spoke to the congregation. Of course, no one tape recorded it, but a lot of the women wrote down what he was saying. And so they put together something. And the part that pertains to us was that he shared that he rode with my dad from his mom's house to the house and softened his heart towards us. And that's the only way that this would ever have happened. Well, then Sharon and I decided we we were 18. We wanted to be baptized on Easter Sunday. So we picked a day to talk to mom and dad about that. And that morning they had found out that Sherman and I were getting married in June of that year. We were not waiting for three years. And they were upset and told me they wouldn't come to the wedding. So we decided we'd prepared. The congregation was praying with us. So that night we we told them that we wanted to join the church. We were 18 and they told us no. And then they left. It was nighttime. They left and drove around and Sharon and I went back to our bedroom, and I can remember us crying and trying to read something out of the Book of Mormon. I had decided that I would go live with Sherman's folks, and Sharon had decided she would go live with the history teacher that lived across from the school, if that's what it took, because both of us felt strongly about the church, about the gospel. And they came home and called us out into the living room, and told us that we could join the church, but that they wouldn't um, support us in going to college. We had a, they had gotten us a small insurance policy when we were born. It amounted to $400 a piece, and they gave us that. They paid for our graduation. But um, then we got married in June, and of course, I knew my folks weren't going to support us in that. But Sherman's folks were great, and his mother was, I was probably closer to her than my own mother, but she told me she'd make my wedding dress and she'd make the bridesmaids' dresses. About the same time, um, she got a call from her sister in California, and when she and her two sisters were teenagers, their dad had made them hope chess, and the sister in California was calling to say she didn't want hers anymore, could she send it back to Becky, Sherman's oldest sister? And Sherman's mom said yes. Well, when they got it in the mail, there was a wedding dress inside it. And I tried it on, and it fit me perfectly. And the aunt does not remember putting a wedding dress in there. So that's what I wore to our wedding. And my folks did not come, but Paul Winans gave me away, and another lady set in as my mother, and um, so we got married, and it was 57 years ago. <laughs> and Mom and Dad grew to love Sherman and to respect him, and we just, we just hung in there. We visited him, even though we knew they weren't happy with us. We, we were always there for them, and in time, I think... They felt that, and 
So by the time, well, my folks did not like Sherman's folks, and they did everything they could to avoid them. They both lived in Creston. But the last year and a half of my mom's life, she lived at John Knox in Lee Summit. And her happiest times were when Sherman's mom and his youngest sister came to visit her. So see, things just kind of turned around. They they never joined the church, but they know the truth now. And it will be interesting to see them <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, did you ever um, talk to your dad about the from the church being told that John the Beloved rode with him? No. Did, was, no. I don't think they would have been receptive to that. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, what was going on with you during this time when all these experiences were happening? Growing up in the church, you kind of had a, a background, and I know you were at a kind of different spot in your life. But Well, I, like she said, I was at Graceland. And uh, once I came home at Christmas time, um, my brother had said something about, well, you should. He, he was dating my twin sister at the time. My brother was dating. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to ask Cheryl out, and we'll all four of us go somewhere. I said, well. Sharon out. Or, no. He was going to ask Sharon out. No, he was dating Sharon. Yeah. And he was going to ask Cheryl out for me. Oh, okay. And then, <laughs> Sorry. And then, he, and then he said, and then we'll all four go out together. And I'm like, you can ask her, but you'll be going out with two, both twins because I'm not going. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. Anyhow. You guys don't care about all that. I just, once I did end up going out because he asked me to. And she was she was really enthused about the church and the gospel. And so, of course, I thought that was neat. Um, and I'd had a really bad experience at Graceland. And so eventually. I chased him. Hmm? I chased him. <laughs> so eventually. It didn't take long until I was trying to go to Creston. This is where I was really going with this. I was trying to go to Creston to church every chance I got because I knew she would be there. And uh, Delbert Smith was going up there a lot as 70 for the stake, and he knew I was interested. In, and so he would call me all the time. I think half the time he went, he just went so he could take me. Uh, <laughs> it was just being nice to me. But uh, he would always call me, and I'd ride up with him. And so I was there for some of those prayer services, not not near all of them, but for some of them. And I was there several times when someone spoke under the influence in tongues, and then the, the tongues were always interpreted as they ought to be. Um, I was there when certain other people in the congregation were spoken to, and I knew that Paul Winans as pastor had uh, said, I don't know where this came in exactly, but had said that these five we had five women in the congregation who had non-member husbands who were concerned about their husbands being brought into the gospel, coming to a knowledge of the gospel. Um, and he had said that if, if the congregation would be faithful in prayer and fasting, paying their tithing, that sort of thing, that those five would join and that there were five young people who would join. I think I've got the numbers right. And uh, so I saw that happen. Uh, just like had been, I don't, I, I don't want to say like Paul said because it wouldn't have mattered what he said necessarily unless it was under the influence of the Spirit. But I saw what he had brought by the Spirit take place. And one of the things I think I saw, and it probably goes without saying, is I, th- I think the reason 
Cheryl and her sister and these other young people in that were drawn in so quickly and easily was because the people were united. They were very, very loving. I mean, I don't think that these people who were drawn into the congregation came because of the doctrine. <laughs> I don't think they were concerned about doctrine, but they felt the love of Christ there. And it was there because um, the people really were united. So I, I don't know what else to tell you about that. I guess I have a question about, um, I guess from what you said, a lot of the experiences were happening on Wednesday nights. What were what were the Sunday mornings? Because today we seem to put a lot more emphasis on the Sunday mornings than we do on the Wednesday nights. And from what I'm hearing about the experiences, most of it was happening on the Wednesday nights. I wasn't there on Sunday mornings. Well, I think Paul, as pastor, spent a lot of time praying for the congregation. And I think he was directed in who he asked to preach on Sunday mornings, and, as, and so he brought people from outside in a lot, but of course he used the men in the congregation too. And so the, the sermons, I think, were above average quality, however you'd say that, during that period of time too. And a lot of them uh, were preached by people from outside. Um, and he did a lot of work having classes for the priesthood and... Yeah, the priesthood met pretty regular for prayer and fasting. The Aaronic priesthood developed a home visiting and that the program. home visiting program was very active, and we had we did have priesthood classes on a regular basis. I mean, it. I, I've always was always kind of amazed that Paul ran an insurance agency, so he had. I mean, he was busy. But he seemed to put the congregation first, and I know that he spent a lot of time in prayer by himself. Also, he would come over to the church, I think, almost every morning and pray for the congregation before he went to work. And there were others in the congregation that I'm sure were doing a lot of that too, but I mean, as pastor, I knew some of what he was doing. But. When you talked about the love of God obviously being the, the main thing that brought you in, obviously we're not, well... <laughs> Some people, but, but I'm not seeing a lot of the same experiences that are happening that happened at Creston today. How how do you? I don't know if replicate is the right word because God's living, so He can He can do it whatever He pleases. But how do you return to kind of that environment where you have people like that? I think it will take a congregation, Mount Air who are dedicated to prayer and fasting and paying their tithing and following the word of wisdom. And I think if you could ever have a congregation that could be united in those things, that you'd see fantastic things happen. But, you know, 57 years, the devil has really developed all of these distractions and all of these things that we think we have to be involved in. And I'm speaking for myself. It would be hard for me. I think, I went through this experience. I know the exciting things that could happen. But am I willing to pray and fast like I did then? We, we pay our tithing. That's never been a problem. But as far as the word of wisdom, you know, I, 
I'm guilty as everyone else. How do you how do you fast on that? Was it just fasting every? I'm, I guess that the youth were fasting every day at lunch. Then it was to that right. point. And I guess I'd ask you, what would you just say to someone who says so? How how should I fast, or or what should I? Where should I start in my fasting and prayer? What would you say to that? Well, there's a lot of different ways to fast. I mean, there'll be some people that say you have to fast food, you have to fast a meal. But sometimes, like when my girls were in um, high school, I gave up sugar before they went to camp that summer. That was hard for me to do, but I wanted them to have a good experience. Sometimes I love my iced tea, giving up iced tea. You know, it. there have been times that I've given up meals, like when our grandson Kyle was diagnosed with cancer, right? I fasted a lot of meals during that time, but well, I think you, I think that's another place where you need to be sensitive to the spirit. Uh, one of the things I think I used to fast from a lot when I was younger was my music. So I think it has to do with picking out the things that take your attention and distract you and getting them out of your life, because normally they're things we really like. But we've got um, if you want if you want to have. I don't know if I should say if you want to have those kinds of experiences because I don't think it's a good thing to covet spiritual experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want to be open to the direction of the Spirit, wherever that Spirit wants to direct you, whether it's to those kind of experiences or something else, you've got to really want that. And you've got to, this is just me now, I think you have to, with the help of the Spirit, develop a real love for his people and a concern for their souls. We we have so many things, and she kind of touched on this, we have so many things in our lives today that we enjoy, life is easy, um, and so it's we're distracted. And we really don't focus on the gospel. And I, I like to say the gospel because it's not a matter of church structure. Organized church, to me, it isn't. It's about taking the message of Jesus Christ and, and the salvation that can come to man through him to our neighbors and our friends and the, our families and the, you know, the people around us. Uh, and sometimes it'll be taking it to people we don't like, but that's who the Lord wants. Um, I mean, if I don't know if this is a good time, but while I'm talking about that, one of the greatest experiences I've ever had, I think, I went to a youth camp, and as I think I was about, as a counselor, I think I was about 22. And there was a lot of stuff going on at that camp that I didn't think was right. But the staff was kind of promoting it. And um, I just, I couldn't, I didn't feel right about it. And so I kept praying about it, praying about it. And it seemed like I was the only one that was concerned about it. So finally I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'll just go home. But I didn't want to just get in my car and drive off. I thought, well, then that'll look really weird, and people will bug me about it forever. You know what happened? And I didn't want to be—I didn't want to become the center of attention over this. I just wanted to—I just didn't feel right about it. So I finally decided, before I do anything, I'll just go out in the woods and pray about it. So I went out in the woods and was praying, and uh, I never know 
how to put this in words, but the, the spirit came over me, and it was like my spirit left my body. And I can't say I went someplace that I saw anything in particular, but I did go somewhere, and I, and I know the Lord was there, and I experienced His love. And when I say experienced it, I don't know how to talk about it. It was like I tasted it, I felt it, I, I just don't know how to talk about it. But it was real, very real. And he, and he, he showed me how He loved everybody He'd ever created when anybody that he created just to discard. He loved every one of his creation. And then he showed me that that included me, which just amazed me because I didn't think anybody liked me. Um, but that changed my whole life. And afterwards, there were, as time progressed, I felt like he was in that experience. Well, when the experience was over, my spirit came back into my body, and I was just my body was just laying on the ground, and then I it was like my spirit came back in. I got up, but uh, and then I thought, well, I don't. It, I guess it doesn't really matter whether I like what's going on or not. I have to love these people. I have to stay and try to express God's love to them, whether they pay attention to it or not. But the other thing I felt a, several times later, I felt like He was trying to tell me that that was really my whole calling in life was to love his people. And you can talk about priesthood and what office you're in and all that sort of thing, but or, or if, if you're not in the priesthood, whatever, I think our calling is to share with people the fact that there really is a God, that he really did send his only begotten son, and that they can be saved and they can be forgiven and redeemed. Um, that's what he wants them to know. Sorry. No, not at all. When you talk about the love of God, that charity, um, it's because I've had my experience with that, where it's like indescribable, but there's so many people in the church, and I didn't realize this until I started sharing my experiences, that other people have had that experience too. And it's kind of like a, they know what you mean, but they can't put it into words either. But also just reading about it in the scriptures and, and the commonality with that feeling it or getting to experience the love of God is like a, a proactive, like, well, I got to go share it now. Like, it's not a, I'm, I'm sure there are some times when people are at down and empty and Lord fills them up and they feel good. But most of the time, from what I've heard, it's like, well, I got to tell people about this. It's got to be like an outward. Yeah. Well, I had always been very, very quiet and introverted prior to that experience. But like you said, after that experience, it was like, it doesn't matter what they think of me. It matters whether they know Christ. And so I just became more outgoing. And I think Cheryl wondered what had happened to me, too. <laughs> and so that was when you were 22. So um, had you, were you finished with law school? You, no, no. No. He, he took but, a roundabout way to law school. Can I take just a minute and tell you yeah. a little bit about I'd been going to go to law school ever since I got out of high school. I'd already finished two years at Graceland when I was 19, so that I'd finished those two years before we got married. After we got married, I was going to go to law school, so we moved to Des Moines. Well, then that didn't work out. We don't need to get into all that, but I went back to Graceland, finished up, but because of the move back and forth, I had to take another semester. And then, then I worked for a while for the Department of Human Services, 
In Creston. In Creston. We were back in Creston. Had one child. And then um, there was a fellow who worked for the department. Well, I still wanted to go to law school. So we moved back to Des Moines. And I got a job with an insurance company was going to go to law school at night because they had a program. Well, I got admitted to the program and everything, but the, but a month or so before it was supposed to, I was supposed to start, they dropped the program. They didn't have their night program anymore, and so I couldn't work and go to school. Mm-hmm. So I gave that up, but there was a fellow from church who worked for the Department of Human Services at the state level, and he talked me into going back and getting my master's degree in social work, so I did. And then I worked, and there were a lot of neat experiences with that, but I don't, we'll get too far off. We had two kids by then. Then we, then we, um, then I worked for a couple of years, and then another guy talked me, kept talking to me, and he kept saying, you know, if you really wanted to go to law school, if you don't, you'll kick yourself forever. And so finally, Cheryl and I talked about it and decided, yeah, let's try it one more time. And we had nothing. Um, well, we had kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, by then we had three children. <laughs> and, of course, she's busy trying to raise the three kids. And so I was the only source of income for our family. And they and the law school would not have allowed me in if they had known that. They had a policy that said you can't work the first year. But I did. And I, I was the only means of support for the family, but I went to law school full-time during the day also. So We felt like the Lord wanted him to go to law school because he didn't even take his LSAT until, like, July and apply, and he got in to Drake. And my LSAT score was way better than I'm capable of. <laughs> he got a small scholarship every year because of his LSAT score. Which is, you know, I'm not that great of a student, but but the Lord always blessed me. But when we knew we were going back, here's where I wanted to get to. When we knew we were going back to law school, we went to the bank. And I said to him, I want to go to law school. I've got three kids already, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, I know I'm going to have to borrow money to get through this. And will you loan me the money? And they said yes which I thought was a blessing to begin with. So they loaned me the money for the first year. And then I came back that summer and said, here's my grades, and they were good, and, and will you do it again? Yes. So they loaned me the money for the second year. And I went back the second year, same story. Came back the end of, end of that year, and here's my grades. They're still just as good as they ever were. And they said, uh, no. We've looked at that, and we've loaned you too much money since you don't really have anything. You have no collateral, and you're, you know, you're just working, living month to month. We can't loan you anymore. And I was thinking, this is awful. I'm two years into this, and they've pulled the plug. Now I can't even pay them back. And I was really upset at first, and I thought, and one of the worst things was, I thought, now i got to go home and tell Cheryl this. We've borrowed all this money. We've come this far, and i got to go tell her I don't know what we do now. I guess file bankruptcy or something. Uh, so, but on the way home, I was really impressed with the fact that, you know, this is a, this could be really a good thing, because you you have come this far because you thought the Lord wanted this for you. So why not test the Lord, and He'll either prepare a way so you can go ahead and finish your third year, 
and you'll know that it was him that did it, or he won't, and you'll know now that you were on the wrong track instead of getting 20 years down the road and finding that out. So I thought, that's not, that's all right. I think I'm, I'm good with that. So I felt okay about it. I went home, told Cheryl, and that's kind of the first thing she told me. Well, I guess this is the, the, the test. We'll find out whether this is what we're supposed to be doing or not. So we just went ahead, and I worked that summer, and, and uh, we really, at the end of the summer, we weren't able to save anything. I never, I couldn't save anything well, we with three kids. We fourth kid. Yeah, and then we... A, a foster daughter who was 15. So we went ahead, and they were, they were asking us if we would take her, and we prayed about it, felt like we should, so we did, even though everybody thought we were nuts. Uh, and about, what, two weeks before school was supposed to start, we still had nothing. I thought, well, I guess I didn't understand what I thought I did. Well, then one day we got a letter in the mail. So we're getting really close to when I was supposed to go back. And we got this letter in the mail from an insurance company in California that I'd never heard of before. Never heard of them since. I went and looked. Couldn't find them. And it said, you've been selected as our student of the year, blah, blah, blah. And so we're paying all your tuition next year, plus your books and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, can that be for real? <laughs> so I went down and got in the line to, to sign up. And I got up there, and she wanted to know my name. I told her my name. And she said, oh, yep, you're all paid for. You're all taken care of. If you go to that table over there, they've got a $500 check for you, too. And which doesn't sound like that much now, but, you know, that's probably like $7,500 or something now. <laughs> uh, and so I, Cheryl and I said, well, thank you, Lord. I guess you did want us to do this. And, and we've just, the Lord's blessed us like that over and over and over. It's amazing. But he always kind of brings you to the point where you, you got to admit, okay, I'm totally reliant on you in this. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. And then he steps in and does it. So he got a chance to clerk at the same law firm where his brother worked. His brother had already gone to law school, and so that kind of, he worked like 30 hours a week, and then he came home, and every night he read like three or 400 pages of or five or six legal work and still did his priesthood, took care of them, and we didn't see too much of him. But I don't say this to be patting myself on the back, but I think you have to be careful in all those circumstances not not to let yourself think, well, I'm really, I got all this going, I'm so busy, I just don't have time for my priesthood. You just can't do that. You got to keep your priesthood first. So I, we continued. We went, went to church all the we time. We went to church every, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. I participated in home visits. I mean, we just kept on, tried to keep that as our focus. And sure enough, when you do that, then the Lord kind of takes care of the rest of that. Uh, it looks impossible, but He He can do it. Mm -hmm. I um, we were here. I don't even remember. You guys were our here. second home visit. I think it that we did. Ago, that was, and now we're at number fifty. So you, you guys, it's, it's been a while. Yeah, <laughs> forty-eight home visits ago. But you shared a testimony when we visited uh, that first time that has stuck with me about committing to going to Wednesday night services you're working at a, at a do you do you know what I'm referring to when I was working in my master's degree in Iowa City I, one of my jobs 
<laughs> I always had jobs everywhere, yeah. little part-time things. <laughs> One of my jobs was uh, working at a hamburger stand, and it was um, you could drive through, but it had a big dining room too. And so the manager came in one night and said to me, he said, hey, how would you like to make some extra money? And I, you know, kids and that, yeah, you bet. He said, well, I'm going to make you a night manager and it'll pay you. I don't know what it was, but it was, it was more. And that sounded good, except that as soon as he said it, I didn't feel right about it. So I went home. I said, well, I'll have to talk to my wife about it. So I went home. I talked to Cheryl. And, and one of the things we... I think we considered was if I do that, I won't be able to go to Wednesday night prayer services. And so, but, but I just didn't feel right about it anyhow. And Cheryl said she didn't either. So I went back and told him, I don't know, a day or so later, I said, yeah, I've thought about that, but I don't think that's going to work. I'm not going to do it. So he turned around to another guy that worked there and he said, how about you? You want to be night manager? And the guy said, yeah. And so I wondered at the time, I thought, well, I don't, you know, maybe the Lord was opening a way for me to make a little more money for the family. I don't, I don't, maybe I made a mistake, but I didn't think I had. And so I don't know, it was a few nights later, I don't know exactly how long, not very long. Two guys walked in <laughs> and, uh, at night and they walked in and I, ha I happened to still be there, I think, I don't remember. Anyhow, they walked in and they, just walked up the counter and said, who's the night manager? And the guy that said, yes, he'd take the job, said, I am. And they shot him. And they said, just so everybody knows, we're serious. And then they held the place up. And I was standing. Stand sure I don't know if I was there or anyhow. I, did. I just know afterwards I thought, oh, yeah, I'm, thank you, Lord. Because if, we, if we'd have taken it just for the money and ignored the other consequences, when I'd have got shot. <laughs> When we lived in Iowa City for four months, we lived on $350 a month. We had a $140 a month rent payment, a $50 car payment, a $50 tuition payment, and the rest we could use on food and gas, whatever else we wanted. All four or five dollars. <laughs> so his working and getting an opportunity to make a little more money sounded really good at the time. Yeah. How it, discernment's a tough thing to describe to someone, but obviously you had the discernment in that situation when you were praying the worldly side, and even even so, like you said, maybe the Lord had prepared a way. The obvious answer on paper is take the job that gives you more money. So how can you put into words, I guess, the discernment and, and the process that you've used throughout you guys' life on knowing what the Lord wants you to do? I don't know that I could verbalize a process, but as you were asking that question, the thing that came to my mind was that I think really helps with discernment. If you read the scriptures and you believe what you read, and you stick to what they say, the Lord will direct you. And I think that's a big part. I don't know if that's what you'd call discernment, but I think He has prepared a way for us to know what's right. And when we really try to do what's right, then He works with us. And so it's a gift that can come and go. And I will say say this, when I had my patriarchal blessing, I think I was 16 or 17, 16, I think, 
I was told by the patriarch that that, that was one of my gifts was discernment. And so, you know, maybe some people have it more so than others. If they do, it's not to their benefit or not to their glory or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's because the Lord grants it to them. But I do think, and I was really impressed when you were asking the question, we can all benefit by reading the scriptures and then obeying them. And one of the things that I remember reading in the scriptures that applied to that situation and it's applied all through my life was we're told over in a number of times in different ways um, not to work. They didn't say it this way, but not to work for money, not to work for the things of the world. That should not be our focus and our goal. We need to trust that if we really need something, the Lord will provide it and we need to keep him first then. Uh, and whether that relates to attending church or whatever, we need to keep him first. And if we do, he'll take care of us. And but we live in a in a world where everything's focused on money and material possessions, and everybody wants them, and they're available. And if we get focused on that, we won't have that discernment when we need it. Mm-hmm. That's just one example. But well, I think often that. Um the Lord moves like well, to what you said that He moves when you're either or you really need Him to move when He's got you at the bottom of the the barrel and you got no way out, or you're just not expecting Him. Like in in situations where you say, "Well, that was the Lord looking out for me. I didn't even know I needed it at that time." Yeah, I know you've had a um, experience with the the three lanes, the mm-hmm. car that you jump. Um, not jumped, <laughs> uh, but uh, what you want? Would you mind telling that? Because Jason hasn't heard it. But okay. Well, when I was about those crazy moments. Yeah, some of this I just need to repent of. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Um, but they you did get I down mean, on your knees and thank the Lord. Well, that's, you're still alive, and I, and I and I have over and over and over. Because I recognize it was his hand. It wasn't me being a great driver or anything else. Um, I think I was 17. And I had a car that was really fast. Um, There's a story there, but I won't talk about that. Uh, And I was sitting at home on a holiday at Labor Day, I think, or anyhow. Um, And I heard him on the radio, and they were talking about those... This is one of the most dangerous days during the year for traffic fatalities and that sort of thing. And so the highway patrol is really out today, et cetera. And I was sitting there thinking, well, that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> and so I decided I'd get in my car and drive to another town about 60 miles away uh, where I had a friend and see how fast I could get there. And I won't tell you how fast I got there because it's, you wouldn't believe me. But I mean, I really rolled, and I got there, and I picked. And the highways back then were very narrow, and they had curbs. Yep. On little, the side, little two-lane highways with a curb on the side. So if you got up on that curve, it made it really curb. It made it really dangerous. But anyhow, and uh, you don't want to hear all that story. When I got there, I picked my friend up, and I took off, and I was still with my foot to the floor. And we headed out of town, and I came up over a little crest. And when I did, all of a sudden there was, I don't remember now, six, seven, eight cars, something. Um, For some reason, seven sticks in my mind, but I don't know. 
I, there was this string of cars, and I was running well over 100 miles an hour, and they were probably doing the speed limit, 55, 60 or something. And I, it was a big, long hill and an open one, and I thought, no big deal. I'll just pass them. So I didn't let off. I just pulled out in the other lane and started to go around them. Well, the second guy back decided to pass, the guy in front of him, I guess. Um, and all of a sudden, this car just pulled out in front of me. And there wasn't any place for me to go. And I, what I remember in the back of my mind is that there were kids in the backseat of that car. And I thought, oh, man, I can't hit them. But it all happened so quick, I can't. Happened a lot quicker than I can talk about it. So I decided to just pull to the left and run down the ditch. I didn't really want to at 120 miles an hour, but that seemed to be the only alternative without hurting them. And so I went to yank the car to the side, and when I did, all of a sudden there was a third lane of pavement. So I just pulled on over and went down the third lane of pavement, got around everybody, and came back. And I thought, there's never been a third lane of pavement there. I mean, I'd been out there and back plenty of times. There never has been three lanes. And I'm sure they didn't get it installed while I had my back turned for a week or two. So I went down the road a little ways, and I stopped, and I turned around. And I thought, i got to go back and look. And so I did, and sure enough, there was only two lanes all the way back to town. But there was a third lane there when I needed it. And so, yeah, I know, I know the Lord can do anything He wants. It just isn't anything He can't do. Mm -hmm. And I know I've shared with you before, but and I'll make this real brief too, but, you know, like when I had my grandson on my motorcycle and we were down in Texas and running along 60 miles an hour and uh, the short story is a car pulled across both lanes in front of us and stopped and I had no idea they were going to do that. I mean, it just... So I slammed on the brakes and the bike started to slide and this gal that was driving this car apparently... I could tell you it was really weird. She didn't know we were there, but you don't want to hear all that. But she it was in the summertime. She had her window down, and she just stopped across both lanes in front of us. And when I hit the brakes and the tires started squalling, she looked up like she had, had no idea we'd been there, although she should have. And then she screamed real loud. And, of course, again, it happened so quick. And the next thing I knew, we were on the other side of her car driving down the pavement just fine never touched her and I just remember her screaming and then we were on the other side and gone and we never touched the car I mean I don't know how the Lord does those things but he did and I stopped asked my grandson who was about 16 16 or so at the time I said you saw what just happened didn't you and he kind of hesitated and he said well yeah sort of <laughs> I said well I think we need to take time to thank the Lord for what he just did for us uh, so again I know he can do anything one time right after we got married and you, I'll quit no not at all one time right after we got married um, again the short version is we were up on a mountain hiking our honeymoon yeah we were fifty dollars yeah, fifty dollar honeymoon. But we made it to Colorado, <laughs> and we were up on the mountain hiking, and we started to come back down, and it started to rain just like it always does in the mountains in the afternoon, you know, evening. And we were just on a rock ledge. It was a long ways to the bottom of that 
whatever you'd I'm call it. you even got on there. Yeah, I can't believe I was even out there because I hate heights. But it started to rain, and that made the rock really slippery. And so I said, I think we need to stop and pray. And so we did. And then we started to go forward. And the next thing I knew, we were at the bottom of the mountain. I was like, how'd that happen? And so the next day, I told her, I, I got to go back up there. And so I went back up to what I thought was the same distance because there was a sign fairly close to there. And so I went back up to the sign, which actually wasn't quite as far. And uh, I was just by myself. And I turned around and I went down just as fast as I could go. And I don't remember now what it took me, like 25 or 30 minutes or something to get down. But the day before, we'd stopped and prayed, and then we were just at the bottom of the mountain. And, I mean, there's times in the Scriptures where the Lord talks about, or where people talk about the Lord physically relocating them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's what He did for us. It's just why He does those things for you, I don't know. You know, I told you about Him healing my hand, but I don't want to do all the talking, so. What? <laughs> <laughs> That happened when you were in law school. Yeah, when I was in law school, I was coming. And we had no insurance and three kids. And I was coming home from work late at night, and there was a guy. Um, again, I'll make it short. There was a guy whose car was obviously stalled, and I, it was one of those nights where it was like 10 below zero or something. I don't know, 5, 10, 15, I don't know. And I thought I went by him because it was a really rough neighborhood, and I thought you know, I was afraid to stop for fear it was just a setup, get me to stop, and then they'd jump me. And then I, after I went by, I thought no, I can't do that. I got to go back and see if he needs help. So I turned around and went back, and without getting into all of it, he ended up pinning my hand between his car and my car, and I couldn't tell you exactly how it happened, but. I got my hand caught somehow on the door handle. I was trying, I put my hand out because I saw his car coming, which was stupid. I should have yanked it back inside, but, but, and then he caught my hand and twisted it down in between the cars and it caught on the door handle at the same time. And I heard it pop and snap. And then in the process, he got his car to run because he just rolled it down there, but he's got it to run. He put it in reverse and drove off. <laughs> and so I had to reach out the side get my arm, bring it in, because I couldn't move it, and roll the wind up, and I went home. By the time I got home, it was all swelled up really big, and it just looked like I had little tiny fingers sticking out of it. And I went in the house and told her what had happened. She said, well, we need to take you to the emergency room. And I said, we can't do that. We don't have any money. We don't have any insurance. They're just going to send me home. I don't know if they really would have, but I thought they would. And so she said two or three times, well, we, we got to go. And I said, no, we, we just can't. There's no way. Finally, we decided to get down on our knees and pray about it. And, of course, I was hurting really bad. I asked her if she would pray. And so she did. And my, in the meantime, at first I couldn't feel anything. But by the time we got to where she was praying, my arm was just killing me. Man, it hurt all the way up into my shoulders and that. But while she was praying, I could feel the pain. Just It was like it just came out of my arm, went down through my hand and was gone. And when she was done, my hand and arm were just like it is now. I never went to the doctor, nothing. It was, it was just back like it was supposed to be. Um, the Lord just healed me while she was praying. 
And so I, you know, again, I don't know why he does those things for us like he does, but I know he can do anything. He has all power. Go ahead. When Sherman finished law school, he had worked, he had clerked for this law firm and and he mainly worked for the senior partner who really liked him and eventually offered him a, a job. And so he worked there for about a year and a half. And the partner's son also worked there, and he didn't like Sherman. And Sherman knew when the senior partner died, his son would get all of his clients. So well, we, he told me when his, when his dad died, I was gone. <laughs> so we started looking around at small towns. In, first we looked in Des Moines Stake, and we didn't really see anything that we liked. And... Um, I don't know, the Lord impressed upon me that maybe we should move to Lamoni. And so Sherman came down and visited with a bunch of people, and one of the people he visited with was Howard Strand, the only other attorney in town, who told him that since he was a church member, that would be the kiss of death, that no one would hire Sherman because he belonged to the RLDS church. So Sherman was kind of discouraged, and we were living in Des Moines. He came home and told me. I said, well, what did you expect him to say? Here he's been the only attorney for years. You think he's going to be happy that some young kid's moving in town? So anyway, we we had a lot of people that helped us. Uh, One couple let us come down on the weekends and stay. We we found a building that the Lamoni... What were they? Development Corporation owned that they were willing to let us um, be in for two years if we would remodel it. So without any rent. So we did that, and we thought we had everything lined up with the whatever the bank in Lamoni was at that time. And you can explain what happened. Well, I'd gone to the bank first and said, here's what I want to do, but I don't have any money. Will you loan me the money to remodel the building and to furnish it? And they said, yes. And we thought maybe we'd need money to live on for six months. Yeah, I told them, I, you know, all I've got is my last two weeks' paycheck. Um, so I'll probably have to borrow money to live on, too. Are you willing to do that? And they said, yes. So we remodeled the building. I worked all day in the morning, then I would drive down here at night. Work on the building. Did that for all summer long. And then, but I'd spent the money. I mean, I had bought all the materials and stuff and did the work, but I hadn't paid for it yet. But I needed to. So I went to the bank and said, okay, here's what I've done. Here's the amount that I need. Uh, so can we get that done, you know, and I can get these bills paid. And they said, well, we've thought about it. We've changed our mind. We uh, we can't do that unless we have somebody to co-sign with you. They well, wanted I, his dad to they co-sign. They wanted my dad to co-sign. Well, I was 30 years old. I was like, that's not going to happen. And so it was another one of those deals where you're like, okay, Lord, I thought you were working in this. Did I make a mistake? But I thought, well, the only thing I know to do is drive to Leon. I knew nobody over there. But drive to the bank in Leon and see what they say. So I prayed about it, drove over there, told them what I was trying to do, 
and what I needed. And the guy over there said, well, sure. Um, when do you need that? Today? And I said, that would be good. He said, well, we'll just get you an account set up, put the money in there, and you'll be you'll be good to go. And so they did. I, I was able to pay for everything, open the office up. And the other thing about that is, um, I don't know, you know, you probably haven't had the experience of trying to start your own business or anything, but you go in a little town like this and you open your office and you start and every everything I'd read uh, and all the attorneys I'd talked to and that said, you know, it's going to be a year or two before you can meet your overhead and start making a living. But I didn't have that option really, so we just prayed about it. And from the very first month... I had about two weeks that were a little slow. Yeah, but by the end of the first month, the income was coming in. We were able to pay all our bills as we went along and had enough left over to live on. I never had to go in and borrow any money to live on. Just had to pay him back what I'd spent on materials and that. Uh, and that's, I mean, that just doesn't happen except mm -hmm. for the Lord intervening and taking care of it. So it was pretty amazing. So how have, like... Uh, you talked about the love of God experience obviously has a lasting impact on it changes your perception of the, of how you view the world because you view people differently then. Um, did all these experiences teach you just the same thing or did they teach you like how, how was life different after these experiences started to have, I mean, they've been happening for a while, but did that make sense? Well, I'm always concerned when I share those experiences because it sounds like, you know, everything's always just been fine. The Lord's taken care of everything, and He has. But sometimes it's easy when you share them, I think, for people to overlook the fact that they, most of the experiences we can share didn't happen without something going wrong <laughs> or without you, and you mentioned this earlier, coming to a point where you couldn't go any further by yourself. And so um, for me, anyhow... What I've learned along the way through these things is that um, things don't always go the way you want them to. But if you if you have faith, if you continue to depend on the Lord and try to try to do things His way, um, and try to do things for the benefit of your brothers and sisters instead of being focused on yourself, I'm not saying I get that done like I should. But if you try that, the Lord always takes care of you. One where he doesn't always do what you want, uh, but he does take care of you. And if it's not the way you wanted it, it doesn't take long to figure out, oh, his way was a lot better. <laughs> uh. We should say that probably for 15 years we didn't go to church. Um, after women in the priesthood came out, Sherman was silenced, and we associated for a few months with Ron Livingston's group, and then Sherman felt strongly that the Lord told him to get away from the institution. So we, we didn't go to church. Occasionally, he'd be asked to preach like at Mount Air or somewhere else, or if someone wanted him to do a wedding or some other priesthood or responsibility. Be a or something. I mean, I never, I never said, well, I'm not functioning anymore. I just quit going to the organized church. But then when... 9-11 happened, I started feeling strongly that we needed to go back to church, that I needed the strength of the saints. And 
So Mount Air was the obvious choice because we knew a lot of the people that went there. And I remember the first prayer service I went to was at your house. And we've been active ever since. <laughs> well, she brings up something that I think is a good example of what we were just talking about. When we lived in Des Moines, before coming down here, I was on the stake high council. And so when I came down here, they immediately asked me to be on the council here, too. And uh, so, I mean, we were very involved, and I was very active in the organization. And uh, then this thing with women in the priesthood came along. And I didn't have a real strong feeling one way or another at first, but I thought, this is really something, this will be a major change. I need to know whether this is right or wrong. And so I went to the Lord, and not just one time, but I kept asking him to show me, is this, is this your will or not? And uh, I was very strongly impressed that it wasn't. And then the first two calls for women in Lamoni Stake were presented to the Stake High Council. And I didn't say much, but I felt really impressed that these calls were not of God. And uh, I really, I don't, I don't need to go back and rehash all that, but, but the stake president presented those two calls to us on the council. And then the next month when he came back, he said, uh, I need to revise those calls. They had been two women, both to the office of priest. He said, I need to revise those, and they are now called to be high priest because we think they need to have, he didn't say it, but what I got was they both have doctor's degrees. Uh, this is a big step, a new thing. We want them to feel important, and so we're changing it to the high. And, and immediately I knew, this is not God. This is man. Um, God doesn't change his mind about what office you're called to or what your gifts are and that sort of thing. And so I kept praying about that, thinking about it. I didn't say anything at the council meeting. And then we had a stake conference coming up. And uh, the Lord, this is, this is how I understood it. The Lord told me at that stake conference, you're to stand up and tell the people that this, these calls are not of me and that this high council that has presented them is not led by the Spirit. They do not know the Spirit. They have turned away from the Spirit. Well, I don't want to say that. <laughs> I mean, uh, for one thing, I'm trying to get a business started, and, and these guys all run the community. Um, and, and I didn't want to do that. But So I went, and normally we all sat up front. And I told Cheryl, I said, I... I'm not going up there. <laughs> I'm just going to sit clear in the back with you and be quiet. And so we sit in the back of the room. But as things progressed, I mean, the Spirit just wouldn't let me sit there. And so I stood up, said what I thought the Spirit had told me to say. Didn't rant or rave, just said what I thought I was supposed to say. And then after the service, we left. Well, then I got a letter from one of the members of the stake high council who kind of ran the economic part of the community. I won't get into that. I don't want to identify who's who, but um, 
And he said, you, I will see you leave town in bankruptcy. You can't talk to us like that. It's like, so I kept waiting for business to die. Well, it didn't. Well, it just got a visit by. And then, well, and and then they sent out sent out two members of the stake high council to talk to me and kind of counsel with me and see if I would retract what I had said uh, publicly. And I said I can't do that. Spirit told me what to say, and I I cannot take it back. And they said, well, you're going to be excommunicated or um, silenced. silenced and excommunicated. Then, of course, later they tried to get us back because we. They needed our tithing money. <laughs> well, they did later come around and say, if you'll just take that back, we'll make you a patriarch. And, and I don't know whether I should put that on there, but you, you, can, you can decide. <laughs> uh, but I said, well, and then so then that's when we quit going to church. I said, you don't want me? That's fine. I'm not going to argue with you, and I'm not going to be one of these people who rants and raves and fights with you. That's not what the Lord's about. Um, so I just tried the best I knew how we tried the best we knew how to just keep loving people and be available when they needed us and if they didn't want us fine we go away um, do you find that obviously that you had a you had the work to do and you you never gave up your duties as members of of the not the organization but of being part of the Church of Jesus Christ um, but what did you after 15 years of not going and then starting to go again? And also coming into a branch when you were converted that was having an amazing experience. What is, what's the value of attending regularly and being a part of a community? Is there something to be said for that? Well, we've, I, I grew up in a home where I was told I had to go to church on Sundays to the Methodist church, but I can't even tell you what Methodists believe. And so when I found the gospel and fell in love with it who wants to stay home on Sundays <laughs> or Wednesday nights or Sunday nights you know if the church doors were open even when we lived in Eldora when he was working on his master's degree we had to drive over an hour to go to church we had little kids we always went no money for gas but it was always there and so even now, I mean, since once we started going back to Mount Air, we're always there unless we're traveling. <laughs> My answer to your question would be yes. I mean, the scriptures tell us to gather together often. I don't see how you can express your love for each other if you don't get together. Mm -hmm. um, but and during that 15 years, um, I felt like the Lord kind of reminded me to go read the Book of Mormon and about the definition of the church and it's in there the definition of the church and the doctrine and that and it's not the organization and yet i firmly believe that the lord restored the organization at least part of it i think we've gotten into a lot of stuff that like the jews did <laughs> is not what he was worried about because the church as defined in the scriptures is the people who who love him and Mm -hmm. worship him, obey him. That's the church. It's not really the structure. And yet the structure's important, I think, in that, uh, well, if you, again, if you go through the Book of Mormon, um, you know, one of the first things Alma did was 
organized churches Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's important for, I think, for us as people to get together and support one another and pray for one another. I uh, do feel like us not going to church in the state the church was in, um, our girls, our four daughters were not active for quite a while. Um, Now they're all involved except Julie's a Jehovah's Witness, but she is involved in her church. And uh, so the Lord has, has, well, we never gave up praying for him, mm-hmm. and he has brought them around, and I think they're excited about the work. And when So going through, we, normally what we do, when we don't have guests on this week, just go through the Book of Mormon kind of chapter by chapter, and then we'll talk about what the 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 chapter um, was about or the couple chapters that they're short, but we did um, recently the book of Enos, which is sometimes overlooked because it's like the short book. I mean, <laughs> those four books there, like we were actually wondering how we were going to get any material from, but the book of Enos was actually really good, but it starts off with Enos saying that it was the joy of the saints that he grew up in that, that prompted him to kind of search out the Lord. So it was almost like, you know, without that testimony of people and meeting together and being a community that maybe he wouldn't have had his experience um, like he did. Um, it, that was what prompted him out to the to seek the Lord. Um, do you guys have anything? Do you have anything you want to add before you we wrap up here? I know it's getting kind of later, but... Well, I'm just, you know, really grateful to the Lord for having brought us to a knowledge of the gospel and for all the blessings he's granted us. And uh, I just sometimes just sit in amazement at what he does for his children. Um, And, of course, every day I wish I were a better person. I'd like to figure out how to share this more effectively with more people. But um, I just thank God for his goodness. And I'm grateful for you guys, it's really nice to see somebody younger who's interested and active uh, because so many of us that I know who have been active are my age. <laughs> well, I'm grateful that the Lord um, loves us and He's long-suffering and patient with us because for some reason I can't always stay on a high plane I have my moments when I'm in the valley, and yet he always assures me that I just need to get back up and start going again, and, and he'll be there. So I'm, I'm glad that he's present in my life and that he loves me, even though sometimes I'm not very lovable. <laughs> this can go to both of you, but to what Sherman said, um, how... You know, you look around at, at the restoration, and, and most of the active people probably are a little bit older. What would you say to um, the minority of, of youth that are in there, you know, uh, if you had their attention for however long, you know, like what would you, what would you tell them, that group specifically? Well, I would, I would like somehow to share some of these testimonies with them. Um, to encourage them to uh, seek the Lord out for themselves. 
Uh, you know, he says over and over in the scriptures, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if, if we're not having these spiritual experiences that we desire, it's because of lack of faith and lack of attention, I think, sometimes. I don't think scripture says that. But. So I would encourage all of those who do have some interest to test the Lord. And I mean, I, you have to be careful about that. Uh, don't tempt him uh, to do things to you that maybe you don't want done. But, but try his word. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Try his word. Check, check him out, he, because he always comes through. And I've, of course, I've had almost 80 years now to watch people. And there's just nothing greater than having a relationship with the Lord and having him work in your life, knowing that he's there uh, when times get tough. And, you know, the old story about footprints in the sand. Yeah, that happens. Um, and, and, you know, as a little kid, I was scared of my shadow. Um, and that's a terrible way to live. But I think that's the way a lot of people live their whole lives. Maybe not literally like I was, but they're afraid. But when you have a relationship with the Lord, you can face about anything. And you can get rid of all that fear. Uh, and there just isn't any other way to do that. I mean, the world offers all kinds of material things. And when it comes down to it, none of them matter. Really. I mean, I got some stuff up the garage I collected for years. I thought it was really neat. Well, if somebody if somebody came along and stole it all right now, I'd send them a thank you note. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one more thing I don't have to mess with. Um, but but the boy, I just I don't know. I just really would encourage younger people to try the Lord out, try His Word, live according to His Word, and see what happens. It's amazing. I think as older people, our job is to love the younger people. I, I think in our congregation that when I make an effort to go up and hug Elise or Isabel or you or to let them know that I do care for them, that it makes a difference in their life and it makes a difference in my life. I, I think back to my experience in Creston. I mean, those people loved me, and I knew they loved me. And so it made it possible for me to go on and have a pretty good life. I like to share the experiences, but I don't want anybody else to rely on my experiences. I want them to have their own, mm -hmm. um, and they can. That's, I don't know, the world just has nothing to offer you. That's as great as what God can offer you in just an ordinary, everyday way. I don't know what else to Amen. say. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, I want to thank you for sharing with us, and um, hopefully, this is shared out to places that you might not be able to reach regularly. So, um, I'm sure people will be able to listen to it that you never would have thought would be able to. So, again, we want to thank you for your time, and um, I can stand as and testify that um cheryl being um who she is and just what she said of coming up and showing us that she loved us went over a long way and i think my myself and my siblings um growing up of just knowing that the branch 
loved you. Like they, they cared about you and it was a, a safe place and um, just a, you know, it was a family um, you know, in a long way. Um, well, I thank everybody for listening and um, we'll, I guess, catch you on the next episode. Um, God bless. God bless.